God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey, everybody. This is Jason. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm really grateful that you're here. Hey, are you deconstructing or reconstructing your faith? Do you feel like you're on that journey completely alone? I hear from listeners all the time about what a lonely journey they're on. They feel like nobody near them can understand what they're going through. I'm excited to tell you about a brand new course that we've just developed called Navigating Your Spiritual Evolution. Registration has just opened up for this brand new online course. Uh, Let me tell you about it. We're going to talk about the true origins of deconstruction. Where did your deconstruction actually begin? Usually it's not where we think. Secondly, we're going to talk about why we have to tear down in order to rebuild. We're going to talk about how contemplation can help you see a bigger picture of God, yourself, and everyone around you. We're going to talk about reconstructing in a way that isn't just laying another toxic foundation of certainty on top of the old one. We're going to talk about finding community that won't forsake you after you no longer agree with them on spiritual things. We're going to talk about living a love-centered life and the forgotten goal that we're really all working toward. And it may not be what you think. I'm really excited to say that we've made this course super affordable at just $79. But if you're already our patron on Patreon, at the five or $10 level, you automatically get a $30 discount and you'll get it for the price of $49. Patrons at the level of $20 per month or higher on Patreon get access to this course at no additional cost. And I'm really excited to say that if you cannot afford the cost of this course, please do not let money stand in the way. Let me know. We have a limited number of scholarships available for each session that we offer the course. Here's what the course includes. Two eBooks that have been specifically selected to help you understand the journey you're on and why. Six weekly video lessons, six weekly group Zoom sessions, a one-on-one Zoom meeting with me to discuss your personal journey and what lies ahead for you, and a special members-only Facebook group where you and I will discuss all that we're experiencing as we navigate this road together. I hope you'll register for this course. We've only got a couple of weeks to get registrations in by July 21st. We'll kick it off around the 1st of August. Register today on our website at messyspirituality.org. There are only 12 spots in the first round for this course. So I hope you'll register soon. I'm really excited to take this journey with you. And I hope that you'll join me for navigating your spiritual evolution. My guest today is married to her best friend and wife of 21 years, Ashley. She is a mother, grandmother, and pastor who left religion to rediscover the basic roots of her faith. She works in mental health, helping people who struggle with the effects of trauma. Her focus now is to marry the two fields and as a therapist slash pastor, help those suffering with religious trauma process through the pain of their experience to a place of healing. She is the creator of the Frustrated Grace Comics, a series of books and ebooks, the Frustrated Grace column on Pathios and Langleytown.com. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, PK Langley. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you today, Jason. 
Uh, PK, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. We've uh, been talking about doing this for a while. We worked together a little bit on the Nomad Conference a while back, which was fantastic. And your session was particularly good. And so I've been looking forward to this conversation. Can you start us off today telling us your spiritual backstory? Did you grow up in an atmosphere of faith? I told everyone that I was a methocath. And the reason why I said that is my father was Methodist and my mother was Catholic. So whenever my mother was mad at my father, we would go to the Catholic church and try to be quiet in the pews. And with five children, that's really hard to do. And uh, uh, on Christmas and Easter, you know, we did the holiday thing in the Methodist church with my father. <laughs> so, so I kind of grew up with a little bit of both face. And, and uh, that, was, that was my experience as a kid. Can you tell us about the God that you first believed in? What was that God like? I had a, an unusual experience as a kid. I, I almost died twice. And during that time, I met Jesus. And I, you know, from the Bible stories that my mother told me, I'm sure that I had an image of, you know, white Jesus in my mind. And, and uh, I... I met him during those times and I didn't really remember the conversation that we had, but I remembered he was a nice guy and he was a friend. And so God was a, a friend to me, somebody that I could talk to even in the midst of the, the whirlwind um, in my life because both of my parents were alcoholics. And so we had a lot of tumultuous times and God was always there for me, somebody I could talk to. I love that you grew up with an understanding of Jesus as your friend. I think that's such a benefit, especially if you're living in the trauma and the chaos of alcoholism and all that that involves. Did the church back that up for you? Did you see a distinction between Jesus and the church? That was a that was a place to go. That wasn't that wasn't Jesus for me. That was a place we had to go and we had to sit and we had to be quiet. So I didn't really uh, equate the two together. No, you know, I mean, Jesus was, was, uh, I, w I remember being fascinated with the, uh, the picture pages in the Bible, you know, and all the stories, the good stories in the Bible had the, the little picture sections, you know, whether it was cartoons or not. So I enjoyed reading those. And, and that was kind of my, my God image was more there than it was in the building when I was a child. So how did you go from thinking of church as a place you have to go to dedicating your life to ministry? Well, I, I think that uh, after I got married and I had my son, we started going through uh, difficult times. And I, again, turned toward my faith because that, that had always been a comfort to me. And I was looking for a church. And the first church that I went to was a, a new church. It was a new thing. I hadn't heard of it before. It was non-denominationalism. And I said, well, let's go check that out. And from the second I walked in the door, it sounded like heaven, you know? I mean, there was the best worship going on. And this is a church probably of about 350 people. So you can imagine walking into something like that when all I had ever experienced is this little teeny town with four corners and a post office, you know, so the churches were tiny. So I walk in and there's just this mass of human beings worshiping God and they've got their hands up in the air in reckless abandon. And, and I went, 
I'm home. I'm home. This is it, you know? So I dove in hook, line and sinker, man. I was caught and I dedicated the next seven years of my life to that, that particular church. And I served everywhere I could. I was there every time the doors opened and it became my community, my family, my life. So at what point did you start to feel, you know, drawn into the pastoral ministry? Well, we had a missions budget of $55,000 a year back then. And this is a long time ago, Jason. So Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I went to my senior pastor because I had wanted to go to Africa ever since I was a child. And I felt the pull. At that point, I had done everything there was to do in the church and I wasn't going upward so go outward, you know. Um, I was invited to go to Tanzania with a friend of mine, and I wanted to go. And, and we went, and we had this adventure, and it was incredible. And I wanted to go again. And I said, look, I'd like to go out on a year-end open-ended ticket, and I'd like the support of the church. And he looked at me, and he said, I will give you $25 a month. Will you still go? And I said, absolutely. And I was kind of put off by that because at that point, we had not sent any of our own missionaries out. We just sent money out to other places. So here I am, you know, from, from this place, I had poured myself into it. And when I wanted to, you know, go out and do something, you know, $25, here you go. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, that's all... And, and again, I, I didn't get angry at him. I just said, well, God, if that's all I've got, I'm going to do it. So I traveled throughout East Africa on $25 a month with three other individuals and uh, lived in villages, lived with people and preached the gospel. And I had such an education in the six months that I spent there. And it broadened my horizons and it helped me to understand that I could do what they did, you know? So it's kind of like a child who goes out, you know, and, uh, and thus far they've, they've uh, loved their parents and looked up to their parents, but now they're starting to find their own identity. And, and that's what happened to me. How hard was it returning to the States after that trip? <laughs> oh my goodness. There was such a contrast, Jason. I mean, I, I am walking everywhere I go. I am going to the market every day to get my food because I didn't have refrigeration. And I land in New York City, JFK, and go to the train station to go back down to Virginia. And we, as we're coming around the corner and I'm looking at all the buildings, there's a neon sign that said, too much is not enough. And that really struck me. I've never forgotten that because here I had lived in a subsistent uh, lifestyle, you know, I had just, just what I needed and nothing more. And uh, I came back and we had, we went into this restaurant with a buffet that had like 3 million pounds of food on it. And I just, I was in culture shock, honestly, uh, after coming back. So ministry wise, what happened for you after you returned? It took, it took several years after that and just uh, serving in, in uh, churches and whatnot to, to finally, when I got married, uh, decide that we would start a church. And we started in a, in a firehouse. Well, actually, we started in a bar first. We rented the bar on Sunday morning. <laughs> and had to clean up uh, beer cans and all this other stuff and, and uh, 
we just started reaching out to the community that we were in and building a, a church from the ground up. And um, it was it was quite a challenge. We went from the bar to a fire hall. It might have been in the reverse, but you know, it was still picking up beer cans and cigarette butts before service and and uh, we just we just started building and eventually uh, we were able to purchase our own uh, church building and uh, and build a ministry from there. So uh, it, it prospered and it was it was it was amazing because I think you you begin to understand that you can do what anybody else can do, you know, and you don't feel subjugated anymore, I guess. So you have now you're in the pastoral headship and you can choose which way you go. So there's a sense of empowerment with it, I suppose. How long did you serve at that church? That process was probably about a six to seven, maybe eight year process. Wow. Okay. Now I've heard you before when telling your story, talk about you being the senior pastor and your husband at that time had a different role in the church. Is that right? No, no, we were both senior okay. pastors. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it it was funny because initially we were pastors, and then we were sitting with a a, a couple talking, and he said, "I'm the senior pastor," and I looked at him. <laughs> I was like, "Are you serious? You're going to do that?" You know. Um, and uh, because we did everything equally, you know, so he relented gotcha. after that and said, okay, we're both senior pastors, but I thought it was funny. We <laughs> felt he needed to be the big dog, you know, right. but I went through, I went through a divorce and, and that sent me down to working with a, a ministry in Texas. And um, after, after being there for a little while and being attached to another church and, and just, I had um, a young lady give me a set of tapes and I listened to them and I realized how much, and it was really talking about grace. You know, that was when the grace movement started uh, cracking through and, and I realized how much I was doing for God, but not with God. And uh, it, it really shook me at my foundations and, uh, uh, that is what preceded me walking away from institutionalized uh, religion. Can you tell me who some of those influences were? Who were you listening to? Who were you reading during that season? <laughs> I want to, but at the same time, I have come to see those uh, individuals as as legalistic. Oh, okay. So that was kind of a uh, a midway. From, yeah. I know that Derek Day and I were talking recently on an episode about the grace movement kind of being a halfway point for us. Yeah. How it was like a stopover on the way to freedom, but we didn't find lasting freedom there ourselves. Right. Was that right. your experience as well? Yeah. It it was a bridge. It was a bridge for me to cross, and once I crossed it, I couldn't go back to it because I saw that there were still a lot of legalistic things that, that bothered me about that. Um, so those influences were good and they helped me, but they weren't the, definitely not the end des destination. Yeah. So can, when you talk about legalism, I know that we've got some listeners who are listening to this conversation today who may still consider themselves part of that grace movement. And of course, that's fine. But what legalism specifically did you detect in that bridge as you were crossing it? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the ministries really focused on healing and it was all or nothing. You know, uh, Jesus healed all. So we're going to heal all. And honestly, brother, that's just not the case. And I have been in, in situations, I mean, I remember going into uh, 
Kazinga in Uganda. And I, they took us up to this, this hilltop and there's a Muslim mosque, a seventh day Adventist church, a Catholic school, and this teeny little Christian, there's like five different ministries on the top of this hill, you know, this, it it was kind of mountainy, you know, but it was, it was a hill and, and they're all up there eking out their own little existence. And this little Christian church pastor had invited us and all he's got is four poles, you know, wooden, you know, stripped tree trunks and he's got a tin roof and he's got a pile of bricks in there and, and just a little following of maybe 30, 40 people in his church. And he invited us to come up there. And uh, Ashley and I went up there and she's got a a keyboard with like eight D cell batteries in it. And this is the first time that I had had preached in about four years at the time. So I'm chomping at the bit, Jason, I've got like, I've got like eight pages of notes and I'm ready to like, just pound it, you know? And um, excited, just full of just, just exuberance, you know? And when we got done, I started teaching and I got this deer in the headlight look. And I went, what, God, what, you know? And, and I heard in my heart, just pray, you know? So I turned around and I asked Ashley to just start playing some worship music and we started singing. And I'm telling you, we had something happen in that little teeny church and it was like God himself was standing right there. Every single person I prayed for got healed. Every single person. It was amazing. I mean, there was there were uh, two children there that day that had epilepsy, never had another seizure, seizure, you know, to date. And that was probably 30, 30 years ago. Never had another seizure just one person after another, after another, words of wisdom, revelation. It was just incredible what was going on there. It was like we were in heaven. And at the end of it, there's this little withered up guy. He's in his 60s and he's in the back and he comes up and his neck is so thin. And I'm a woman and I'm I'm about 5'7". I don't have big hands. I could put my hands around his throat fully around his throat. That's how thin he was. And he's he's just a little guy. And I said to the interpreter, what's going on with him? And he said, this one, he's never spoken a word. He's been mute. He was born mute. And I started singing. And all that would come into my heart was, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And I'm singing this less than two minutes. And I feel this dude's voice box vibrate under my thumbs. And I'm like, yes, we've got this. I said, tell him to say Jesus. And out of his mouth comes Yesu, Yesu. Women start screaming. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they start running down the hillside. And they're going to tell all these other people, look what God has done. Look, come see, come see, you know. So I'm just lost in this cloud of amazing, just amazing. That's all I can say. And it, it just was so easy. Everything was easy. And all of a sudden I looked around and we've got no windows. We've got no doors. It's just the, the four posts, you know, holding this roof up. And there are people surrounding us on every side. People, you know, there are children in Catholic school uniforms. I mean, everybody on this mountaintop came to see what was going on. And I just stopped and I, and I knew it was time and I sat down. 
And I said, go ahead. And I gave it to the pastor. I let him do it. What I'm saying is, is there are moments when things like that happen where I've seen miracles and signs and wonders in my life. But to come to a place where you say it has to happen all the time because I said so, that's not faith. That's a proclamation of determination. It's not the same thing. Faith follows. It believes, but it follows. Um, So when I say legalism, I'm speaking of the fact that they were so determined that this is how it happens. And as soon as you see through that, you go, wow, that's legalistic. Yeah, I remember the revelation that I remember when it hit me going through the grace movement that there that God is a, a father or a mother, a parent, not a formula. And there was a formula that had to be stuck to in, you know, certain, I don't know, denominations or movements, circles. Yeah, that's right. Streams is what I was calling them back then. And if you stepped outside of those expectations, the the grace message dried up pretty quick sometimes. Yes, it did. It did. And the people involved in it were also um, caught in another religious trop. I I, I don't know how to say that any better, you know, and because we're all well-meaning. I mean, while I was pastoring, I was doing the best that I could with what I had, the understanding that I had. So when I read stories of like Paul in the Bible killing people, you know, I feel like he was doing the best that he had with what he knew. And when he knew something better, he changed. And and that's that's exactly what I did. You know, I started to see light beams coming through the grace movement and it was pulling me somewhere else. And, and the, the scripture that I think of the verse in the Bible that I think of, I hesitate to say the word scripture because I've come to know it as so much more now, but the, the verse where, where God is saying, come and, 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 and reason, let us reason together. And then he talks about, you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart and, and that's exactly what I was doing. I was searching for God with all of my heart and the whole time he was inside of me and I didn't know it. Mm, that's so beautiful. So those light beams that you saw shining through the grace movement, they drew you inward to the God who had been with you the whole time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, this morning, you know, I, I was talking uh, to someone and, and we were sharing and I said, you know, I I became very, very acutely aware, Jason, of the dangling carrot. And that's one of the cartoons that I did. When I did the Frustrated Grace uh, cartoons, and they're up for free for anybody that wants to see them at uh, langleytown.com or .org, one of the two. But anyway, I did a, a cartoon of a little man inside of somebody's head with a carrot hanging out, you know, just keep reaching you know, I became very acutely aware of the dangling carrot, the carrot that's in front of the donkey so that he keeps moving the cart because he's stubborn and he doesn't move. But we want the donkey to move. But the reality is, is the donkey could have stayed right there and had a revelation of God, you know, and and I had become that that donkey in in religion because I was always chasing a carrot. And this morning in my conversation I had this epiphany that was so powerful to me. And and a lot of times people look at it when I get these epiphanies, it's so big to me and somebody goes, Oh yeah, (laughs) you know, but, but when we read the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, they reached for something outside of themselves. That's where they fell. 
That's where they fall. Instead of understanding that the God of the universe is one with them and inside of them, they fell for the lie that they had to reach for something outside of themselves. They were the first dangling carrot people. And, and to me, that expresses, you know, the whole essence of religion. If it's something outside of you that you have to reach for, strive for, pray harder for, kneel for, read your Bible more, submit to your pastor, do this, do that. If, if you are so works-based in everything, then you're caught up in that religious lie that says that what you need is outside of you. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you were hesitant to use the word scripture because you've found those writings to be so much more. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? How do you view the writings that we call scripture? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Bible wasn't called the Bible, we know, until it was canonized and put together because Roman Catholicism was was well on its way to to putting a stranglehold on on humanity and and they said we need something you know we need something that's going to get everybody on the same page all the time because we need that consistency and the bible was then started to be called after that after the the canonization and stuff they called it the word of god the word of god and in doing that they put this collection of 66 books in a worshipful package, you know, something to be idolized, something to be worshipped, because now all of a sudden it was holy and it had deity attached to it instead of human beings like you and I listening for God the best way they know how and discerning what God is saying and writing it down. Because if they weren't human beings like you and I, then these, oh, wait, we called them apostles because they were suddenly elevated as well. And they were super Christians and they were powerful people that suddenly couldn't be questioned 100 uh, percent, couldn't get it wrong. So, I mean, there was there was this that happened that also called the Bible scripture. And scripture is really spirit-inspired word. It's it's God-breathed essence, God-breathed word, what God says to you that's written down, that's scripture. So we've got a whole lot more scripture than 66 books that are out there. And how do you know what scripture is? Scripture is spiritually discerned. So for instance, you can find scripture in the Bible, but the Bible is not all scripture. So, you know, you're reading along one day and you get this epiphany because I said this during Nomad, you know, I said that God will speak to you through a Bible if you make him. I remember that. (laughs) You know, I had never said that before, Jason. It was so funny because I I was like, oh, that's good. But it was such a natural moment for you. It was just like something you said, you know, Yeah, it was great. (laughs) I love those kind of moments because I'm just as blown away as everybody else is. I'm like, where'd that come from? You know, (laughs) but but you're reading you're reading the Bible and you go, oh, that's so good, you know, and you just feel that God is speaking to you, you know, and I've had those similar, you know, moments in reading other things, you know, and I won't list what other things, but, you know, you can get a spiritual word from God from a donkey. You can, you can get a spiritual word from God from your child or from a next door neighbor or even from your enemy, you know, I mean, it's when that, a quickening happens happenings in 
happens in you and you say, wow, that's good. That's really good. I got to write that down. All of a sudden it becomes scripture. So that is my explanation of it, you know, that we we have created the Bible to be something to idolize and it was it should never have been that. Well, I agree with that completely, of course, and I, I love the way that you've put it so well. The pushback that I get when I talk like that in many circles, um, especially around my old evangelical friends, is, well, you're just justifying picking and choosing what to believe out of the Bible. How do you respond to that? Well, we pick and choose what we believe out of the Bible anyway, <laughs> because... <laughs> I was going to say, I thought we were doing that the whole time. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we do. We, you know, we like to use the word cherry picking. Right. You know, um, every pastor that preaches from the pulpit picks Bible verses that apply to his life, to his body's, uh, you know, his particular church's life. And, you know, we do that all the time. We try to find things that are applicable to us and to our personal experience. So we're making God speak to us through the Bible instead of allowing God to speak to us any way he wants to. And and that's the funny thing, you know, you can you can get aside when you can't find your answer in a Bible, what do you do? You pray. Mm-hmm. You seek God. Right. You you ask God for answers, you know? And sometimes when you're in a crisis situation and you are desperate, somebody is dying and you need God. I will, I will give you a good one, Jason. You're going to like this. My wife and, and, and best friend of 21 years, we were in Houston and she was working uh, probably 60 hours a week. And I noticed that she was getting more and more and more tired. Unbeknownst to us, she had 14 tumors growing in her. Oh my goodness. 14, three of which were the size of grapefruits. Mm. And it was draining her life. And I was watching a woman who was standing by faith. And I'm, I'm tearing up right now because I want you to know that that was, this was one of the greatest challenges of my life. I'm watching a woman who is standing by faith wanting God to heal her because she knows something's wrong. She doesn't know what it is. She's refusing to go to a doctor because her stubborn self wants to dig in and be like those heroes of the faith that she admires and has been taught about in religion. You know, Mm -hmm. she wants to do that. She wants to be, she wants to be somebody that God loves by her standing in faith. Right. And I'm watching her and it got so bad that she was coming home and sleeping instantly as soon as she got home and the color was draining from her face her personality started to change. And during this time, I was battling death and I needed an answer. So every day when she left, I was getting my guitar, going into my bedroom and shutting the door and worshiping God until I had an answer for that day. And I would worship until I was weeping and I would get an answer. And then when she came home, I would give her that answer. And it was like every day there was a battle. I was fighting visions in my mind of finding her dead in her in her bedroom in the morning. Mm. Yeah, we weren't married at the time. Wow. We were just, you know, living together. We were still in that place of, of religiosity where we wouldn't acknowledge the fact that we were in love with one another. And, and 
I'm telling you, Jason, every moment of every day during that time, I was fighting for her life. Mm. And I needed an answer. I didn't need a scripture verse. I needed an answer. And so I would dig in and I would worship and I would pull on God and I would say, God, you've got to give me something. And then finally, finally, I realized the 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 true answer, you know, I, I said, listen, I love you and I don't think God's going to be mad at you for going to a doctor. Why don't you go to a doctor and we will trust God to work through that process to to find that answer for you. And she accepted, finally, she accepted that. And when she went, that's when they found those tumors and she went through an operation and they took them out and she was healed. Hallelujah. But that's what I'm saying. When you, when you get to that point, you don't need no BS. You don't need somebody just giving you, well, God's got it under control. You need an answer. And when you need that answer and you press in with everything, you're not necessarily going to a Bible. You're going to fall down on your knees because you can't even read. You need God to talk to you. Right. Yeah. I remember, I remember the old uh, Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. When Moses looked up and he said, I want to hear the voice of God from God himself. Man, even as a child, when I heard that, I was like, yes. <laughs> you know? And that has always been my heart. I want to hear from God himself. And isn't your God big enough to speak to you as a father every day with a new conversation, a new understanding, new insight into your life? Why do you feel that you have to go to an old book with old stories and dry toast you know, to find the answers that you need and the relationship that you can have with God. Why would you, why would you settle for that? Why would you settle for reading the these, the thous? Oh, wait a minute. We have new translations in everyday vernacular now. So that's better. Come on. It's so much better to have a walking spirit led relationship with God. He never meant for us to depend on a book for life. He wanted us to depend on him. Amen. That's the what never made sense to me about evangelicalism and our our views of the scripture. Uh, it seemed like every page told a story of God interacting with humanity, God talking to humans. <laughs> and, and it was very often the most unlikely people in evangelicalism to who, to hear from God. You know, the unlearned, uh, those who couldn't read, the women, or people who were pushed to the margins of society, uh, <laughs> prostitute, well, whoever, you know, the folks who were not the uh, in religion with God, the Samaritans, you know, he was always showing up and talking to people that in my mind, God didn't speak to. And that kind of plays a role in your story as well, right? You mentioned you and Ashley living together and kind of still in religiosity, not acknowledging being in love with one another. How did that change? Do you mind telling us that story? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'd love to tell you that story. Um, And I appreciate you asking me about it. I am a person that would love who I love, and it would not matter. I was married to a man. I was married to two men. And um, I love who I love. So for me, I didn't struggle with my sexuality. I knew that I was drawn to women, but 
in my mind, I just thought it was a temptation and it was the devil. And my wife and I had a real good chuckle this morning because I said, were you attracted to, to me physically beforehand? And she just looked at me with these bashful eyes and she said, yes. And I said, did you rebuke the devil? And she said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we just laughed and laughed about that this morning. Um, we, I could not acknowledge that. I was in love with her. And I was, I mean, we had the greatest love story. The first time I saw her, she was sitting on the floor of the senior pastor's uh, secretary's office. She was sitting on the floor wearing jeans with a rip in them. She had Jesus sandals on. That's what I call them. Her long hair, uh, curly hair was going over her shoulders. She had on a plaid shirt and a white t-shirt and she was sitting on the floor leaning back on her hands and that was the first moment I saw her, Jason. And I remember exactly what she was wearing. She so struck something in me that I will never forget that image. There was something that happened in that moment. And a little while later, we were sitting out on a car at like one o'clock in the morning, just looking up at the stars and I was talking to her and we just had such a beautiful friendship and such a connection with each other that I have boxes and boxes of emails that we sent back and forth to each other before you had cell phones that just, we were talking about our day with each other, you know? So there was such a strength of friendship and love that was there, but religion would not allow me to acknowledge it. And uh, it was when I started going through deconstruction and the walls started falling down of things that I had been taught that I realized were no longer true and hadn't been true all along. That was when that started peeking out a little bit. And Ashley and I were dating guys at the time. And um, I went out on a few dates. And then when Ashley brought a guy home, I lost my mind. And if I mean, it was kind of comical because she brings this guy, she brings this guy home. And his name was like Simba or something like that. I wish she was here because she would tell you. She met him on one of those dating apps. And he comes in and I thought, man, he's got pretty hands. He's handsome. Seems like a nice guy. Now, now remember, I haven't acknowledged that I'm in love with my best friend yet. And he sits down and he looks outside and he goes, those are some nice treases. And I went, yeah, nice treases. And I was angry. I was instantly angry. And I walk into the kitchen and I thought, what is wrong with you? This is your best friend. You should be happy for her. And I'm pacing in the kitchen and all of a sudden the light bulb went on and I said, I'm in love with her. And now I've got to reconcile that with my newfound faith, my old faith and my newfound faith that has walked away from religion and is deconstructing. And I took at least two months, uh, Jason, because Number one, I still believed in hell at the time, and I didn't want to send my best friend in the whole world to hell. I wouldn't do that to her. I would, I would suffer in silence for the rest of my life because I loved her that much. I would go without her if I felt like it was going to send her to hell. And I'm quite confident, Jason, that there's a lot of people that suffered in silence over the centuries because they could not tell their best friend that they loved them. 
So anyway, I took a couple of months and I spent time with God and I poured over the Bible because I was still going to the Bible as my rule book for life. It was my rule that I was going back to instead of realizing that I was free. I was free from the law of sin and death, which is the rule book. Anyway, I had to reconcile it. And I remember reaching out to a guy on Facebook who was, had just, you know, come out as being gay. And I said, what, what happened, brother? I mean, how did you finally get to that place? Because, you know, I'm thinking about it. And he said, I had to realize that the grace of God was enough for me. That, that kind of hit me like a bullet, you know, that the grace of God was sufficient even for me. That was when I was near to the end of that. And uh, shortly after that, I came to Ashley and I said, I've, I've always told you what is on my heart. We've been on missions trips together. You've been my worship leader. You're my best friend above everything. And I need to tell you, and, and boy, oh boy, Jason, I had to have a little bit of liquid courage because I was scared to death to tell her. And I said, I, I want you to know that I'm in love with you. And she looked at me and she said, but I'm not that way. <laughs> and when she said that, it was devastating for me because I'm like, great, I've just put all my cards on the table and I've told you that I'm in love with you and you're telling me you're not that way. But I mean, she'll, she'll tell you now, she was just afraid. Right. She yep. was afraid. And so the next uh, few months, she did her own investigation. You know, she did her own digging and searching out and talking to God and taking walks and things. And, and when she got to that point where she knew that it was the truth, that it was okay, that God loved us for who we are and didn't condemn us because we were gay, she crossed over. And when she did, she shocked me. She crossed over so fully because I was still kind of walking on a little bit of eggshells, you know? Sure, of course. It was really, really good because we got married not that long after and uh, we went to Hawaii and there was a double rainbow on the way to the beach. And, and I'm going to tell you, I have experienced such joy, such happiness, such peace, such love, such togetherness. And, and just, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. I have never been happier in my entire life. And, you know, you'll have some people that'll tell you, sure, the devil will make you happy because you're going to hell, you know, but that's not true. You, you, if you know God and you learn anything about God and discerning what love really is, you know, when you found love and I have the most beautiful love just story with my wife. And she always tells me that I should put it in a book because we went through quite a bit together. I'm sure. Uh, well, I'd love to read that book. So I hope you do that one day. <laughs> How did your family and any kind of remaining faith community at that time respond to you coming out? Well, when I first did the uh, Frustrated Grace series, it exploded around the world. I had a little globe on my website and I would watch it light up all around the world whenever I put out a new cartoon. I had over 15,000 hits on that website in the first year of doing the Frustrated Grace Tune series on deconstruction. They said, this PK Langley is incredible. 
he is so wise. This man has really got it. (laughs) And unbeknownst to me, see, I already had my own Facebook in my name. And when I was a pastor, they always called me PK. So I just chose that for my Facebook for putting my deconstruction stuff on there. I didn't know people were going to assume I was a man. And so it exploded because people thought I was a man, believe it or not. And when they found out that I was a woman, a a great big portion of my readership fell off almost overnight. Wow. And that's sad. That that says something to the the state of things today that we're still very much in a in a hierarchy where uh, it's male dominant. And then when I came out and told everybody I was gay, it fell off to almost nothing. And so it was it was really painful to go through that because there I was back in obscurity again when we walked away from the church in religious deconstruction, we lost every friend that we'd had. My wife's family completely disowned her, completely. Now she had a stepfather that stood by her every step of the way. And we lost him this year. So it's, it, that cuts a little to, to talk about, but he was such a support and would send cards and encourage us. And that was a beautiful thing. But this is the sad thing is that when people who claim to love God and love Jesus can accept each other when they are doing things behind closed doors that they consider a sin, cannot look past somebody else that's in a gay relationship that they consider a sin. See, it doesn't match up. It reveals itself as a prejudice because you treat people who are gay differently than you treat people who sin. So it exposes this societal prejudice against gays. And and the beautiful thing is, is we've come so far, but we have so, so much further to go yet in embracing each other and, and not looking at it as, as the sin police, you know, we've got to monitor everybody's behavior. That's ridiculous. Jesus came to set us free. If we really believed that statement uh, completely free, then we wouldn't feel like we have to police everybody's sin. How do you think we get there from here? How do you think we get where? Well, you're, you're talking about freedom, where we stop policing one another, that where it's not all, you know, comparing one another to the rule book and finding fault with one another, which most of the time seems to be just covering up for insecurities we have about our own relationship with God. We think that we've uh, failed under the rule book. How do we get past that? How do we find real freedom that doesn't have us fixated on sin within ourselves or in each other? Well, it's, I think education. I think it's helping people to understand that the law of sin and death is all about sin maintenance. It's all about works-based righteousness. It's all about feeling like I have to sacrifice an animal or myself just to get God to love me. And the awareness of Christ and the revelation of Christ and the freedom of Christ is to understand that the law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death, that behavior modification program that, you know, I've always got to look to the Bible and see if it's okay for me to do that. 
taking it out of the hands of the rule book and putting it into uh, the pocket of relationship. It's, it's understanding the law of the spirit of life in, in Christ, which is really the, the liberty. I mean, Christ came to set us free from the law of sin and death. And that's exactly what it is, you know? And everything in the world is, is, is it functions under that, that threefold system, that lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And in that system is that works-based righteousness because you have to work your way into salvation. That's that outward apple that Adam and Eve picked that we, we talked about in the beginning. It's, it's reaching outside of ourselves to earn our own salvation. And once we realize that we have it, then we come into that place of rest. And I love the verse in the Bible that says, he that has believed does enter into rest. It's really true because once you do believe and you understand the law of the spirit of life in Christ, when you understand that it's not based on what I do, it's not based on my works. It's not based on me going to church every Sunday or every time the doors open. It's not based on whether or not I read my Bible enough or pray enough or do enough or be good enough or not be bad. It's not based on any of that. It is based on the fact that we are in relationship. We are in la familie of God. We're in the family of God. We're, we're, belonging in the beloved. We're already there seated in heavenly places. That lets us understand that we're in a position in Christ that's eternal and it can never be taken away because of behavior. Amen. I don't know what it is that keeps crawling us back to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil when we've been invited to the tree of life, where we just cease from our labor, where we just enjoy the love of God and give it away to each other. Uh, But there just seems to be this constant pull back uh, rather than exploring the freedom that we've been given. And I'm so grateful that you found it. Yeah, me too. Well, this is another thing I want to let go because I've had this understanding for a long time and I think that people need to get it. When you go over that story of the Garden of Eden again, I want you to put the human anatomy over that story and take a look, take a look at the Euphrates River, which is the longest, the longest river. Take a look at the Euphrates as that descriptor of that artery that comes off of the heart and runs down into the legs of the body. Take a look at that garden that was planted eastward in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden. The garden, uh, I'm sorry, the garden was planted eastward in Eden, okay? On the east side of the heart is where the oxygen is. And, it, and even the word in their atrium, it talks about a garden, So that whole story is describing a human being. The Garden of Eden is the human being. And the tree of life, we've got that little brain that when you cut that thing on on the side, it looks exactly like a tree. So, So there's an anatomy lesson in there. And there's something that is a clue to understanding the fact that it's all inside of us. Everything is inside of us, and it was from the very beginning. Beautiful. I love it. You mentioned in uh, in the bio that I read, you mentioned uh, feeling drawn towards a dual ministry of therapist and pastor or, or merging those roles somehow. What drew you to therapy or providing therapy? I did counseling as a pastor. 
counts on a lot of stubborn, pig-headed people, I tell you what. <laughs> and as a pastor, you fix everybody. As a pastor, you have the answers and you are focused on getting the next person in and out because the next person is, is waiting on you. I think that I straddled mental health for a lot of years while I was pastoring. I've been in the mental health field for over 30 years and they throw at me like the most difficult cases when people in, are in psychosis, they're like, she'll take care of them. <laughs> so, so I've always had a great patience with human beings and an ability to connect with them. And I have a desire to kind of marry the two because I want to focus on people that are struggling with religious PTSD, uh, religious trauma issues. And I want to help people to understand that going through church indoctrination and deconstruction and reconstruction, there should be three things in there. It shouldn't just be deconstruction because there's an indoctrination that happens. There's a way of life in the church where you are like programmed to think, programmed to act like there's a social culture about it and you get immersed in that. So it's very important to, to understand the indoctrination as well when you're going through the deconstruction to understand what happened to you. And it's amazing when you start looking at people that have been kidnapped people that have been brainwashed, traumatized, victimized, childhood trauma, a lot of the symptomology is similar to people that have gone through religious deconstruction. Because when you walk away, you get people, everybody that were your friends, your family. I mean, heck, the guy that said he was my spiritual father suddenly said, get out. <laughs> you know, how can you just. Oh, wow. How can Abandonment. You, yeah. yeah. How can you just stop being my dad? Now, all of a sudden, you're just not my dad. We're not family. You know, it was all a lie. So um, for me, just wanting to to have that net. I want to build a safety net for people that are coming out to help them process what they're going through, to help them understand it, and to also hold a space, a safe space for them to, to just feel what they feel, to just experience what they experience as they go through deconstruction. Because it is so important to not jump from the, fire, uh, the frying pan into the fire when you walk away, there's a lot of people that just end up reaching back and they're trying to help other people deconstruct, but they forget to pay attention to their own health, their own mental health. And so that's, that's why I have a passion for it. I'd, I'd like to build something that uh, is a net for people. Well, I, I love that concept. Uh, I remember when I was pastoring, never feeling adequate to the task because I really felt like what most of us, including myself, needed was more of a therapist than a pastor uh, for that whole PTS. I mean, there is absolutely mad church disease. There's trauma that gets inflicted even very young, uh, you know, growing up in the church. And I never felt qualified or <laughs> equipped to handle that. And so I love this idea of blending therapy and pastoral ministry. And I'm so excited that you're moving that direction. I've heard you hint a time or two, maybe in an interview, maybe at Nomad, about 
a project that you're working on, some special project for those going through that deconstruction and indoctrination, reconstruction. Can you tell us anything about that? Mm, Yes, I have hinted at it. Okay, I've been out of this for a while, Jason. So I've seen people that come out and, and they become broken fixers. And what I would like to see also is an end to this every man's a tent and an island unto himself. It's just, it's just, it's sad because we haven't built community, which is what people need. It's one of the top three things that I've heard over and over and over again. And it's time that we start listening and put down our banners and start working together. So I want to see us just legitimize a faith outside of religious traditionalism. I want to see a, a umbrella organization out there that begins to work toward legitimizing um, and helping people to know it's there. Because when I came out, I felt like I was swimming in an ocean all by myself. Yeah. What, what does that look like practically? <laughs> That's what I'm working on. I'm, I'm actually building the bones on that. And you're one of the people that I, I wanted to reach out to. But uh, I want to focus on three elemental things. Um, and it's, it's still in the works. Gotcha. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting something together, but I'm going to shift it your way. Um, but I think that we should, we, should have, we should have more people working together instead of trying to do things on their own. We shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel, um, you know? Yeah. And, and that was the hardest thing. Like we had, we had this great big old evangelist that was invited to our, to our city, right? And the evangelist uh, team came in to plan for this event at the Civic Center. And so we had all these different churches in the city. Everybody was invited and they sat down and those human beings started arguing over who would get the conversion cards to the point where it fractured everything. Oh, and no. it ended up being such a major flop because they didn't want to work together. And so I, I would love to see us actually have something that, and, and I'm telling you, I'm being met with a lot of pessimism over it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, that it's because there's hurt there. There is encapsulated trauma there that you need to mm-hmm. deal with. If you can't see this, if you can't see the kingdom of God on earth, then you've got some encapsulated trauma regarding the kingdom of religion on earth. Right. So deal with your crap. <laughs> deal with your crap. Um, because Amen. We, we should be working together and we should be. I, I had this romanticized idea of the book of Acts, right? I saw all of us coming together whenever we had opportunity to and praying and seeking God and saying, you know what? We should do this. We should take this message over here to these people. Yeah, man, I'll throw some dough that way. All right, let's do it, man. That's what I'm witnessing in my heart. Yeah, that's a place of agreement. Let's do it. Woohoo! You know, I just had this idea of everybody working together in love, in harmony, under the direction of a spirit-led life. If, 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 Christ, if Christ truly is the head, then why we got all these other heads? We've got this like, you know, uh, what do you call that? There's a mythical beast that has like a ton of different heads. Anyway. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that's what that's what we look like when we don't want to work together, because if Christ truly is the head, 
and we're the body, then we should be working together. And we should be getting this message out there that it's okay to love God and love others. And that's enough. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be an intellectually heavy message. It doesn't have to be, like you said, the people that you saw God talking to in the Bible were simple people. They didn't have concordances and Bible degrees. So we don't have to have all this head knowledge because the message of Christ should be so simple a child can understand it. Like my little son running upstairs with his friend when he was four years old going, Tony wants to get saved too, mom. I I understand that we have a different perception now, but I'm saying it should be so simple in loving God and loving others. Why do we have to like complicate things so much? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited about that. Yeah. I'm excited about your project. Uh, I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing whatever it is that you put together and and uh, seeing a lot of different folks from across the spectrum get involved and work together. I think that's going to be awesome. I think it's going to be beautiful. I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation, PK. It's been such a gift. Um, how can our friends who are listening today engage with you and your work online? Um, they can find me on Facebook, uh, Religion Buster, PK Langley. You can probably do a search and find me, but it's uh, I think it's Religion Buster. My langleytown.com website is up and you can find me there. You can find all the uh, the uh, religious deconstruction cartoons. They're available on Amazon, but why do that when you can get it for free on my website? So, but yeah, I'm, I'm around. You can, you can locate me. All right, we're, folks, we're going to link to PK's website, her social media, uh, and the uh, comics that she mentioned. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. So I hope you will check out all of those resources and also watch langleytown.com for future announcements about that special project she's working on for those of us who are deconstructing and reconstructing. PK, thanks so much for your time today. I'm so grateful for you. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. 